There are schools of thought that believe we have unlimited scope and possibilities for making decisions. The truth is that our scope is somehow restricted and we have less room. It is therefore key that we engage in innovative decision-making to optimize opportunities in our business and personal lives. We need to understand our decision-making skills as individuals and organizations. This will enable us to adjust accordingly to the constant changing environment. Question. If Jesus had taught at Harvard Business School on these related issues, what would he have to say? My name is Timike Akimbolomo. Happy New Year 2021 and welcome to Season 2 of the If Jesus Had Taught at Harvard Business School podcast. We are in challenging times at the moment and everyone is seeking solutions and solace. Social media has been a major player in the dissipation of information over this period and their protective measures have not been adequate enough to stop the publication of fake news. The impact has been quite destructive over the years. The diverse topics on the plethora of social media outlets include the current COVID-19 pandemic, Brexit, US elections, religious views and opinions on what is right and what is wrong. The character and behavior of some political and religious leaders have caused ripples in the belief systems of the populace. All this has led to a simple question when it comes to the role of Christians. How do we fit into this global theater of events and how relevant is our input in society? Hence the theme of today's broadcast, exploring the spiritual relevance of a Christian in the global marketplace. To further drive our discussions, we will address two key questions. Question one, what is a Christian? Question two, what is the marketplace? A Christian can be defined as one who professes belief in the teachings of Jesus Christ and follows up with the application. In other words, a hearer and a doer of the word of Jesus Christ. On the other hand, a marketplace can be defined as a sphere considered as a place where ideas, thoughts, artistic creations compete for recognition. Now, these two answers give us an initial mandate for a Christian in the global marketplace. As Christians in the global, global marketplace, our main role is to communicate the ideas, the thoughts, the beliefs and the teachings of Jesus Christ wherever we find ourselves and to make them relevant to any domain we find ourselves in. So what exactly does relevant mean and what prevents us from being relevant? Another question, or I would say another interesting question, but one that needs to be addressed if we are to replicate the impact of the 12 disciples that were so relevant during their brief spell on earth that we are still reading and talking about them today. Every day we wake up, we get, on a we get on a mode of transport to get to work. Now, I guess nowadays during this pandemic, it's a case of switching on our laptops. Either way, we are preparing to provide our skills and services to an industry sector. Now, the key sectors for the times that we're facing right now are the following. Health and social care, education and childcare, utilities and communication, food and necessary goods, transport, 
Key public services, public safety and national security, national and local government. When we consider the global mandate laid down by Jesus thousands of years ago to have dominion and also to be salt and light, can we consider ourselves relevant each time we enter the arena of the global marketplace? Are we making lasting footprints each time we walk into the office or switch on our laptops? Years ago, I engaged in a discussion with a friend of mine regarding ways in getting our children engaged. We identified a litmus test which will involve two rooms hosting different subject contents on TV. The first room, the first room will be tuned into the Disney Channel and the other room with TV contents provided by the church. Children will be given the options of staying in either of the rooms based on their individual preferences. We both came to the same conclusion that based on the current society that we live in, majority of the children will go to the Disney Channel room. Questions. What does Disney Channel know that maybe as Christians we have failed to realise? Is it safe to conclude that Disney have a way of identifying the relevant protocol to attract our children as part of their programming strategy? Is it safe to also conclude that Disney, like Jesus, know how to capture the hearts of children in all segments, as we see in the Bible in Matthew 19 verse 14, when Jesus said, Let the little children come to me, and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of heaven belongs to such as these. Interesting statement, as we see that Jesus welcomes the children, rather than being an obstacle to them. So the question bears asking, could our irrelevancy to the world in terms of contributing to the ecosystem of children be because our church programs are irrelevant and hindering? Something to ponder on as we continue our discussions. Now, what does relevance mean? I find the definition of relevance by Webster as very befitting for the theme of our discussion. Practical and especially social applicability. That's what Webster says. Practical and especially social applicability. Earlier, we mentioned the role of salt and light as key ingredients for relevancy. This raises some other important questions. Is our presence as Christians in the global marketplace preserving society? Are we impacting society with loving and godly counsel and wisdom that brings transformation and relevance? How do we construct a framework that will enable us to discern the components of relevancy and not make the same mistakes that the Jewish community made when Jesus brought a relevant message of the gospel to Jerusalem? It has to start with a vision and the vision has to be from God who controls everything above the earth and under the heavens. Here is an extract from the book, The Founding of Harvard College. After God had carried us safe to New England and we had built our houses, provided necessaries for our livelihood, reared convenient places for God's worship and settled the civil government, one of the next things we longed for and looked after was to advance learning and perpetuate it to posterity. For we dreaded to leave an illiterate ministry to the churches, 
when our present ministers shall lie in the dust. And as we were thinking and consulting how to effect this great work, it pleased God to stir up the heart of one Mr. Harvard, a godly gentleman and a lover of learning. He was living amongst us. To give us one half of his estate, which was worth about £1,700, towards the erecting of the college, and for him also to contribute all of his library. After him, another person gave £300. Others after him cast even more, and then the public hand of the state added the rest. The college, by common consent, was appointed to be at Cambridge, a place very pleasant and accommodating, and it was to be named after the name of the founder, Harvard College. Now, this extract could explain why Harvard University is one of the most sought-after institutions of higher learning in the world. And we can now understand why, when you consider the mandate and guiding principles the school was established upon. Now, we mentioned the importance of a vision earlier. Some of the guiding principles of Harvard are the following, when the school was established. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well the main end of his life and studies is to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. Lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. Seeing that the Lord only gives wisdom, let everyone seriously set himself by prayer in secret to seek it of him. Everyone shall so exercise himself in reading the scriptures twice a day that he shall be ready to give such an account of his proficiency in the following. Theoretical observation of the language and logic. In practical and spiritual truth as his tutors shall require according to his ability. Seeing the entrance of the word giveth light, it giveth understanding to the simple. That they refute all profanity of God's name, attributes, word and ordinances. During times of worship, they study with good conscience, carefully to retain God and the love of his truth in their minds. Let them know that notwithstanding their learning, God may give them up to strong delusions and in the end to a reprobate mind. So what is the vision and the guiding principle that God has given us as Christians so that we also leave an impacting legacy that will continue to transform the earth into the Lord's kingdom? What vision and guiding principles do you operate from to make you relevant in the global marketplace? The next case study gives us a detailed understanding and the importance of having a vision or what I call a divinely inspired picture upon your heart and also a mission statement for more clarity when communicating to people your relevancy in life. In October 1784, Wilberforce embarked upon a tour of Europe, which would ultimately change his life and determine his future career. During this time, Wilberforce explored afresh the spiritual principles he had first encountered in childhood through the influence of his aunt and the Methodists. He started to rise early to read the Bible and pray, and he kept a private journal. He underwent an evangelical conversion, regretting his past life and resolving to commit his future life and work to the service of God. His conversion changed some of his habits, but not his nature. He remained outwardly cheerful, interested and respectful, tactfully urging others towards his new faith. Inwardly, 
he underwent an agonizing struggle and became relentlessly self-critical, harshly judging his spirituality, his use of time, vanity, self-control, and his relationship with others. Wilberforce's involvement in the abolition movement was motivated by a desire to put his Christian principles into action and to serve God in public life. He and other evangelicals were horrified by what they perceived was a depraved and unchristian trade and the greed and avarice of the owners and traders. Wilberforce sensed the call from God, writing in a journal entry in 1787 that God Almighty has set before me two great objects, the suppression of the slave trade and the reformation of manners, in other words, the reformation of moral values. As we can see from the case studies above, for the framework to be relevant, it has to involve a vision, a mission, and core values that come from God. So what exactly are core values? The next case study gives us some further insight. When a Christian stands to defend his beliefs in a courtroom, his testimony becomes quite critical, for the court has said a man cannot hold his beliefs if he cannot describe them. A belief is not a hunch, it's not a feeling, or an it seems to me. There are people who have gone to the witness stand, and after stating what they believe are asked, well, why do you believe that? Can you show me that in the word of God? Some do not even know if what they believe is there, but reply with a, it sort of seems to me. Now, the problem with the court with a, well, it seems to me, is that feelings change rapidly. And as a consequence, a hunch or a feeling or an it seems to me will never be honoured. In a court of law, a defendant must be able to state his beliefs from the Bible orally. The court does not expect eloquence, but it does expect the defendant to be able to explain his or her beliefs in a simple and concise manner. It also requires knowledge of those beliefs. This becomes important because often we like to hide behind the title. We may claim to be separated fundamentalist or a Christian, which are just descriptive terms that may have to be described more fully. In the matter of beliefs and believers, the court realized that there must be a test to determine which beliefs are upheld and which beliefs will not be honored and protected by the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. In 1972, the court came down with such a test. <laughs> Ironically, that test case involved Christian education. An Amish man who lived in the state of Wisconsin by the name of Jonas Yoda told the court or told the state that he would no longer send his children to the state school. The state of Wisconsin advised him that he must, to which he replied, I don't think you hear me. I am not going to send my children to your school. Mr. Yoda was threatened with being sued if he refused to comply, but still he refused. He was warned that if he was sued and if the state won the case, he could go to jail. His only response was that he would not send his children to the school. Even under the threat of losing his children, he refused to change his mind, explaining that his religious beliefs prohibited him from complying with the demand. Now, Mr. Yoda did not fare very well in court. 
he lost the case and was told that now that he had had his day in court, he must comply with the ruling. He still refused, never altering his position, and he found out something very interesting. After losing his appeal, his case went to the US Supreme Court, where Mr. Yonis Yoda was told that the First Amendment protected him and he was not required to send his children to the state school. Now, this case laid down the test that was to be used for all subsequent cases to determine which beliefs or which belief systems are to be protected by the First Amendment and those that are not. The first definition the court made was, every religious belief is one of two types. It is either a conviction or a preference. Now, most Christians carelessly use the word conviction. Now, in reality, the test of whether or not a matter is a conviction is a very severe case and one that should not be taken lightly. It will be seen here that most of us possess only preferences. Why? A preference is a belief that is held with such intensity that a person can go into full-time service in the name of that belief. He can be a minister of the gospel. He could be a Christian school teacher or a missionary. He might even give all of his wealth to it. And the court decides, well, this is just still a preference. His belief may energize him to stand on a street corner and witness, but it will still only be a preference. If a belief can change under some, if a belief can change under some circumstances, the court calls it a preference because true conviction cannot be changed. A conviction is something that you purpose in your heart as a fabric of your belief system. It is one that you will not change due to any circumstances. It says, when you believe that your God has required something of you, you will withstand all the tests put to you. It has been said that a man is never made by a crisis. The crisis exposes the man for what he already is. And quite interestingly, there are parallels to this story as we can see in the history of the three Hebrew children in the book of Daniel. When taken into captivity, Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego purposed in their heart, similar to having a vision, that they would not defile themselves. It was something about which they determined with resolve that they would not comply with. Question. So as a Christian in the global marketplace, can you truly show or illustrate by your words, by your thoughts, and by your deeds, that your core values that govern your behavior are based on a preference or based on a true conviction. Now, we've established that, we've established from the case of the Harvard University case study, the William Wilberforce case study, and finally, the John, Jonas Yoda case study, the importance of having a vision, a mission statement, all core values, all guiding principles in being relevant in the global marketplace as a Christian. In the next case study, we shall look at a famous court case that again shows the relevance of Christian principles in coming up with its final judgment. Also known as the Paisley Snail or Snail in the Bottle case, the case involved Mrs. Donahue drinking a bottle of ginger beer in a cafe in Paisley, Renfrewshire. Now, a dead snail was in the bottle. She fell ill and she sued the ginger beer manufacturer, Mr. Stevenson. The House of Lords held that the manufacturer owed the duty of care to her, which was breached. 
because it was reasonably foreseeable that failure to ensure the product, safe, the product safety would lead to harm to the consumers. There was also a sufficiently proximate relationship between consumer and product manufacturers. Lord Atkins, one of the judges, commented that he did not think a more important problem has occupied your lordships in your judicial capacity. Important both because of its bearing on public, on, on public health and because of the practical tests which it applies to the system under which it arises. He agreed with counsel, based on his own research, that Scottish and English law were identical in requiring a duty of care for negligence to be found. And he explained his general neighbour principle on when that duty of care arises. This is what he said. At present, I content myself with pointing out that in English law, there must be and is some general conception of relations giving rise to a duty of care, of which the particular cases found in the books are but instances. The liability for negligence, whether you style it such or treat it as in other systems as a species of culpa, is no doubt based upon a general public sentiment of moral wrongdoing for which the offender must pay. But acts or omissions which any moral code would censure cannot, in a practical world, be treated so as to give a right to every person injured by them to demand relief. In this way, rules of laws arise which limit the range of complainants and the extent of their remedy. The rule that you are to love your neighbour becomes in law. You must not injure your neighbour and the lawyer's question, who is my neighbour, should receive a restricted reply. You must take reasonable care to avoid acts of omission, which you can reasonably foresee that will be likely to injure your neighbour. Who then in law is my neighbour? The answer seems to be persons who are so closely and directly affected by my act that I ought reasonably to have them in contemplation as being so affected when I am directing my mind in the act or missions which are called in question. Now, quite an interesting case study, but the relevancy of being a Christian and the relevancy of Christian principle can be seen from this example because on further research, the judgment in this case was actually based on the scripture found in Matthew. And we all know this famous scripture. It mirrors a scenario in the Bible when on one occasion an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Now the foundation for this case of Donahue versus Stevenson was actually based on this scripture in defining who is my neighbor. And hey, this is, this is how the scripture goes. Teacher asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. <laughs> but he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbour? In reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, they beat him and they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road and when he saw the man, he passed by onto the other side. 
so too a Levite. When he came to the place and saw him, he passed by onto the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expenses you may have. Now, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of the robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. Now we can see that all the case studies that we have spoken about prove that as a Christian, we can be relevant and influential in the global market with our words, with our thoughts, and with our deeds. Now these cases have also shown that a belief system based on Jesus Christ can be relevant, it can be influential, and it can be applicable in the domains, every single domain associated with the global marketplace. To conclude this exploration on the spiritual relevance of a Christian in the global marketplace, we look to the book of Ecclesiastes to give the conclusion of the matter. Number one, not only was the teacher wise, but he also imparted knowledge to the people. He pondered and searched out and set in order many proverbs. The teacher searched to find just the right words and what he wrote was upright and true. Number two, the words of the wise are like goads. They're collected sayings like firmly embedded nails given by one shepherd. Be warned, my son, of anything in addition to them. Of making many books, there is no end and much study wearies the body. Number three, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Number four, the spiritual relevance of a Christian in the global marketplace should be based on the fear of God and an adherence to his commands, which can be found in his word. That the word remains a lamp unto his feet and a light unto every path, step or decision that he takes. My name is Tunike Akimbulamo. Goodbye and God bless.